0: Grant us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We've sung already this morning about God's seeking grace in our lives, that we're prone to wander and He has brought us to Himself. We have sung that we stand forgiven at the foot of the cross. And we have sung this morning that all I have is Christ, and really that's what this chapter is all about. We've entitled the message today, Lost and Found, and as we read through this this chapter right now, I want to just go ahead and read through all 32 verses. I want you to just hear the theme that is woven through this, this chapter. It's three parables, but it's really one message, and that one message is God is the one who seeks the lost, and when he finds them, he rejoices. That's the message in a nutshell this morning, so follow along as we read All three parables, all 32 verses, before we dive into our message today. Luke 15, verse 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are a few Bibles available. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word. Luke 15, verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. He spake this parable unto them, saying... What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons, righteous persons, who need no repentance." Or, what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the piece which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He divided unto unto them his living. And how many days after, the younger son gathered all together. In other words, he turned the property into cash and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living, with extravagant living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want, to be in lack. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against, and in thy sight I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's that phrase. And they began to be merry. Now, the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, a goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son has come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meat, it was necessary that we should make make merry, and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost, and is found. You ever feel like you are always about two and a half days behind schedule? Uh, that's me every day. I'm like, man, it feels like it's three days ago, and here it is already, already Sunday. Well, there's actually a reason why you always feel about two and a half days behind uh, in life. A study conducted a few years ago discovered that Americans spend two and a half days every year in total looking for stuff they lost. Think about the last time you lost your car keys and you ripped the house, every cushion looking for it. All that time combined, two and a half years, or two and a half years, two and a half days, if I feel that way, two and a half days in the course of a year looking for misplaced items. With 60% of people admitting that these searches... Made them late for work. You ever been late for work because you were looking for something? I can't find the keys, I can't get to work, can't find the wallet. Cell phone's missing. Man, that's a helpless feeling, isn't it? By the way, if you're feeling a little poorer these days, it's not just the pain at the pump that is squeezing your wallet. One of the reasons you feel a little poorer is replacing those lost TV remotes and wallets that you keep losing in the couch cushions costs a combined $2.7 billion each year in this country. That's a, that's a lot of money that's going out, just getting, we get a new TV remote, or I lost the keys, got to get them all remade, right? Ryan can tell you a story about losing a key recently, some of those keys aren't cheap to replace. And by the way, if you've got a sneaking suspicion that we millennials, I'm a millennial, are losers, uh, Reality is, millennials, we do lose stuff more frequently than baby boomers. I think we're more distracted. We're like on six you know, social media apps at a given time, texting, driving, reading books while driving down the road, trying to do it all at once. Of course, you're going to lose stuff. You know, listen, losing something can be an incredibly frustrating experience. I can't find the keys. I can't go anywhere. I can't even go down to Lowe's to get a new key made because I don't have the key to get in my car to go do it. Really frustrating. And, you know, finding the thing you lost can bring so much relief, right? Where you're like, yes, I found it in the, in the couch cushion or in that back pouch in the purse that you didn't know existed. There's where the keys were. Lost and found. Those two words kind of take us to sort of the extremes of human experience. When you lose something, frustration, anger, someone else's fault, right? When you find it, ugh, relief. Whew. Well, imagine if the thing that is lost and the thing is found is of immense value to you. That's the point of these three parables, the guy with 100 sheep, losing one of the sheep, well, maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal. Yeah, that's 1% of your assets that you have just lost. And if you're watching someone else's sheep, that's coming out of your pocket. You have 10 coins. You lose 10% of your life savings. Maybe you've done that in the stock market in the last month. It'll come back, don't worry, just be patient. But if you lost your know, 10%, boom, you just lost it. It wasn't spent or wasted. Or your, your children. And that gets really personal, right? This, this father has two sons, and both of them are lost, and he seeks out both of them. Luke 15 is made up of three parables, all with the same point. I'm, trying, I'm going to try to resist the urge today to preach three separate sermons, though I do have in my mind a place where if we're getting really tight on time, we're like, we'll pick it up next week, but I'm going to try not to do that. Uh, we may be here till two in the afternoon, that's okay. The main point of this passage comes through in the repetition. We see it in verse 7, there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. We see it in verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. We see it down in verse 22 and 23 where the father says, throw a party, my sons come home right? There's merriment, there is partying, there is joy. Verse 32, it was necessary that we should have a party because he was lost and he's been found. We see that repetition of that word lost and that word found, both mentioned eight times into sort of the perfect symmetry in this passage. We see rejoicing and joy repeated over and over again in this passage. We see the idea of repenting over and over again in this passage. Same pattern. Somebody loses something They go look for it, they find it, throw a party, right? Lose a sheep, find a sheep, throw a party. Lose a coin, find a coin, throw a party. Lose a son, find a son, throw a party. And the point is, God rejoices over sinners that repent. That's the point that Jesus is making. Now, that's important to keep in mind because sometimes we get to the parable of the prodigal son as it's known to us. The passage, the Bible is literally bleeding here because it's been so misused. People turn it into this allegory, and they're like, well, the sun really represents a Christian who's gone away, and then he comes back. We need to zoom out, and keep the big picture in mind. And remember that Jesus is telling a story with lots of color to make it realistic. Not every little detail here needs to, like, well, the carob pods that the pigs are eating, that represents drugs. That's not the idea. Well, the swine represent it. It's to show how low the sun has sunk. The point this morning is, like God, you and I, as Christians, must rejoice over repenting sinners. Quite often, we're more like the older brother than the, than the father. We're more like the Pharisees and the scribes at the beginning. So let's just dive into this and, and, and learn some truths from this. First off, we've learned that God welcomes the wicked. God in Christ. Verse 1, we find that the publicans and sinners are drawing near to listen to Jesus. Now, this is important to note. Um, chapter divisions aren't inspired. If you look at the end of verse, uh, chapter 14, we have Jesus saying, he that has ears to what? To hear, let him hear. And then the next verse says, look who's listening. It's the worst of the worst, the tax collectors who were in cahoots with the Romans who ripped everybody off, and the notorious sinners in verse 1 who are coming to listen to Jesus. That's interesting. And this is not because Jesus preaches a nice, feel-good, Jolie-Osteen-esque kind of message. If you were here last week, Jesus is saying, You've got to hate family in order to come to me. You've got to love me most. You've got to literally die to yourself and reject materialism to be my disciple. He preaches an in-your-face, hard message, demanding discipleship. And the publicans and the sinners and the people who have no hope from Judaism, from the synagogue, they're like, this guy's got something that we need. He's preaching a message of repentance and new life, and we're going to come to him. So Jesus teaches these individuals, that's telling, they would be banned from the synagogues. The, the Pharisees, the scribes, they would not waste their time speaking. to be like, no, no, no. We only teach decent, upstanding, moral people God's law. Not people who have rejected it. Jesus teaches them. But verse 2, more, to, more seriously, we hear what Jesus is doing through the complaint of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious experts, the, the, the fundamentalists of the day. What are they saying? This man receives sinners and eats with them. And these are both intensive forms. He welcomes them. He embraces them. This is not Jesus just being like, okay, well, they showed up. I guess I'll talk to them. No, Jesus, if you want a word, embraces them. He welcomes them, and worse yet, he eats with them. That's a big deal in the ancient world. If you were here two weeks ago, we talked about banqueting and feasting in the beginning of Luke 14. To eat a meal with someone is to share table fellowship and, and friendship and intimacy with them. Jesus, by eating with these guys, is saying, they're part of my community. These are part of my group i'm creating a a new israel that's not the religious self-righteous people in the synagogues but the sinners who come to me in repentance jesus associates with them he eats with them he hangs out with them now this has caused problems in the past in luke's gospel for the pharisees remember levi also known as matthew he's one of these no good tax collectors who rips everyone off and is in cahoots with the hated romans Jesus calls him to be a disciple. Levi throws a big party for Jesus at his house with all of his tax collector buddies. The Sort of the mafia, the Galilean mafia all show up. And Jesus is eating with these guys. And by the way, Jesus is not blind to their evil and to their wickedness. He's not hanging out with them to condone their sin or to tolerate their sin. He's hanging out with them to rescue them from it. But back then, they had said, why does this man eat with sinners? They're, they're horrified, they're scandalized. And Jesus says, hey, those who are sick, they, they, they need a doctor. If Doctors only hang out with people who are well. They won't heal anybody. I've come to seek to save sinners. That's the first truth we see here, and that sets the stage. That's important for understanding the rest of the parable. The Pharisees, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're, they're griping at Jesus. And Jesus is going to come around and say, guys, you are out of step with the dance of heaven. You're out of, t- out of tune with the symphony of the angels. God's rejoicing, God's dancing, God's singing, and you're griping. Here's how God responds to sinners, and here's how you are. There's a gap you need to get right. That's going to be the point. The publicans and sinners who come by. There's the younger son from the far country, from the pigsty, coming home. Here's the, here's the Pharisees and the scribes, the older brother who's sitting out there being like, well, I'm not going to go. How dare they? griping and complaining. That gives us the contours of the text, This helps us understand what is going on, Which brings us to our second truth, that we see repeated throughout this chapter, "God seeks the lost." So God not only welcomes. God not only welcomes the wicked, God seeks the lost." We see it in all three parables. It's explicit in the first one with the guy with the sheep. We see this in verse 4. A guy has a hundred sheep. He loses one. There's the word lost. He goes off into the wilderness, or he leaves the 99 out there in the pasture, which is often out in the wilderness, and he goes and seeks out the one who is lost. I'm not an expert on sheep, though I was born in New Zealand, so some people think that makes me an expert. But here's one thing I think about sheep. If a sheep is lost, it probably doesn't know that it's lost just happily munching on grass, wandering off into the wilderness. It's not thinking, oh my goodness, where's the shepherd? I've gotten, I need to find my way back. No, sheep only know that they're lost if the shepherd comes after them and finds them. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who seeks sinners. God is the one who seeks sinners. Sinners don't seek God. Rather, God seeks Sinners. Now, the Pharisees would happily ignore the one sheep. They're like, what's one sheep out of a hundred? What's the publicans and the sinners? Who cares about them? They don't want anything to do with God. We'll just hang out with the righteous people. Jesus is like, God's the one who goes after the wicked, who goes after the sinners. Michael read Ezekiel 34 earlier uh, in the service, which contrasts the shepherds of Israel. They don't give a rip about the sheep that are lost. Instead, are like, how can we take from them and plunder them and, and eat them? where he says, God, in contrast, seeks out the lost sheep. He's out on the mountains. He's in the valleys, bringing them home. The leaders of Israel, the shepherds of Israel, don't care about the lost sheep. They only care about themselves. By using this analogy, and by the way, John 10, Jesus really brings it home. I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I am Jehovah God from Ezekiel 34. He's claiming deity, and he's claiming to be the one who seeks after the lost sheep. Wow. He values his sheep. He loves his sheep. He combs the hill for his sheep. He brings them to himself. Luke 19.10, similar story happens. Zacchaeus gets saved. Pharisees are like, oh, you're going to a publican's house for dinner. And Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek, to look for, to search out, to seek, and to save that which was lost. Now, the parable of the woman, verses 8 to 10. Luke likes to take parables and put them into pairs right? He, we see this quite often. So we've got a man and we've got a woman. He did something similar with when he talked about the, the, woman, the, the man who puts the seed into the ground and it grows slowly. The woman who puts the yeast into the dough and it expands slowly. A man and a woman, two parables making the same point. So here's a woman who's got 10 pieces of silver, 10 coins. Drachma, it's referring to a Basically a day's wage, right, for, for a normal working individual. However, let's just say this woman is a widow. She does not have a man who is able to work and earn. And in the ancient world, she's pretty helpless. So to have ten pieces of silver, this is a reference to her entire life savings. This is more, for her, this is, this is more valuable to her than just a day's worth of work. This represents, you imagine someone who is living on fixed income. And you lose your social security check. And they're like, no, we're not issuing issuing a new one. That's what this is. How am I going to make it through the month? This is the $100 that I put into an envelope to buy groceries for the month. I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat this month. So what does she do? It says she lights a candle, she sweeps the house, and she seeks diligently until she finds it. The picture here is a house that would have had no windows. It's dark, so she's got to light the the lamp. And she's got to search high and low in every nook and cranny to find this coin because it's valuable. By the way, there's a little word in that verse. Did you notice it in verse eight? That little word till. We had it back as well with the story of the shepherd finding the sheep. He searches until. This is not just one of those perfunctory. Um, explain what happens in, in in our home. Rachel will be like, "Hey, can you go see if such and such is in the refrigerator?" And I open the refrigerator. We have no milk. Close the door. And then she opens it and she's like, "It's right there." And it's right there. Okay. Does anyone else have that happen in their lives where? Yeah. So, yeah, you can identify. This is not the perfunctory, I looked for the milk and I couldn't find it. No, this is an, a, a genuine, honest search that will be successful. The shepherd seeks until he fi- not if he finds, but until he finds. The woman seeks, not if she'll find, but until she finds. The same way God seeks out sinners. If you came to faith in Jesus, it's because God sought you. Because God came after you. You were off wilderness just enjoying life. Sin was great, and He came after you. Coin that's just ground in the dirt somewhere that no one would ever find. He comes after you. What about the story of the prodigal son? Because that seems to flip the script. You read that, you're like, well, it looks like the son seeks the father, doesn't it? He goes off into the far country, comes to himself, says, I'm going to go home now. I think what's going on here, Jesus is saying, let's look at the other side of this, the other side of the equation. It's true that God seeks sinners. But it's also true that sinners seek the Savior, right? That when he's working on our heart, we say, you know what? I'm going to repent and believe in Jesus. There is that point in time where you come to yourself and you say, I will arise and go to Jesus, and he will embrace me in his arms. I will repent and believe. Think of it this way. If you got up this morning at 545, anybody, was anybody up that early today? Anybody see? Wow, you guys are early birds. Wow. Uh, you go out and see the sunrise. If you watch the sunrise, you literally see this big ball of fire start in the east and it goes up and up in the sky and then it feels like if you're here in the gulf coast it just kind of comes down on top of you and engulfs you in flame and heat but it's not wrong to talk about the as being a sunrise the sun actually comes up and it goes down and sets from our perspective from our description from our uh, the way we see things the sun rises but if you've ever taken a science class you realize that's not actually what happens The sun is in the middle of the solar system. The planets are all orbiting around, and the earth is rotating on its axis. Really, what's happening is the earth is rotating. Well, which one is true? They're both true, depending on your perspective. If we're looking at our salvation and our conversion from the zoomed-out perspective of heaven and from God's perspective, he's the one who chooses us. He's the one who seeks us. He's the one who brings us to faith and repentance, and it's all of him. Yet in the experience of our lives, there was a point where you say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. There was a point where you came and you realized, I'm a sinner, and I realized that Jesus died for my sins, and the only hope is for me to trust in Jesus, and I bow the knee to Jesus and put my faith and repentance in him, and it's a very real decision you make. That's, I think, the, the, how these are fitting together. Does God seek the lost? Yes. Do the lost respond to him? Yes. But we still see the Father's heart in seeking. Verse 20, probably the most... Pathos filled verse in the entire Bible. When he was a great way off. So here comes the son from the far country. This is the same Greek word for the far country. When he's still sort of in the far country, so to speak, the, the, the father glimpses him, he sees him. He does not sit back passively and say, Well, I'll let him make that trip through town and, and I'm gonna sit here with my arms crossed and wait for him to really make no no, what does the father do? He runs. That shows initiative on the father's part. The son would not have come home unless the father ran to him. He would not have been welcomed back unless the father forgave him. And did you notice when the son begins to make his confession, he had a big long speech planned, make me as one of your hired servants. Father cuts him off, he doesn't even finish. Before the son even confesses, the father has already forgiven him. What a a picture of God's grace seeking us. According to Paul in Romans 3, he says, there is none who understands and there is none who seeks after God. In the final estimation, if you are a Christian, it's not because you sought out God, it's because God sought you out. He sought me when I was a stranger, wandering far from the fold of God, and he throws me on his shoulders and he brings me home. In all three accounts, his search never fails. He doesn't go looking for the sheep only to find he can't find it. He doesn't go searching for the coin only to find that the coin is never to be discovered. No, God is successful in his search for the lost, which is so comforting and hope-giving as you and I go give the gospel to know that God is seeking sinners and bringing them to himself. So here's my question to you. If God seeks sinners, Christian, are you joining him on that task, on that mission? If we are people of the cross, if we are followers of the Lamb, does it not make sense that we should care about the things that he cares about? We can respond to the lost a few different ways. We can respond in hatred. Man, there's no good lost people who don't believe in Jesus and hold the values. We, we can respond in fear. Oh, we're afraid of the, the cultural forces at work in our country, and I don't know if we want to talk. Or we need to just combat and then maybe withdraw. Or you can welcome them when they come. Yes, a lost person came to Jesus. Let's welcome them. Or you can be one of the ones who is seeking those. Join Jesus on his mission got to figure out how to create space in our schedules to be able to seek the lost. We figure out how to make room at our tables for those who don't know Jesus. He is seeking sinners. Are you joining him in that? Okay, let's come to a third truth. God welcomes the wicked. He seeks the lost. Third, God celebrates the found. We looked at these verses, verse 7, verse 10. We saw the Father in verse 23 Let us be merry. Let's throw a party. And then he says again in verse 24, they began to be merry. And then in verse 32, it was necessary that we should be merry. This is a word for throw, throw a party, have a banquet, just have a really good time to celebrate like none other. In all three accounts, did you notice that it's not just the individual who finds, who celebrates? The shepherd calls his neighbors over. The woman invites her friends to join. The father has all the servants in the whole household. This joy is too great to be confined to one individual. You say, why do we gather week in and week out? Because we're celebrating the fact that we have been found and the joy of being found is so great, I can't just sit at home being like, yeah, God save me. No, we've got to spill over and get other people involved and we want to talk about it. On Friday, when I heard the, the good news about uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, there were a couple of people that I'm like, I want to just call someone up and be like, this is awesome, man. We've been praying for this and working towards this. This is good news that we can celebrate. When your football team wins wins the championship, you don't just be like, ah, oh, that's great, it's good, I'm going to go to bed now. No, you call, you're like, hey, we won, like, we, we beat people, and you get with the other fans, like, you know, even when, the, when your team wins on the road, they always bring the TV cameras back to, like, the home stadium, and there's people just out in the streets. Why? Because joy demands other people to join it. God celebrates the found. The shepherd celebrates the sheep. Rejoice with me, verse 6. The woman celebrates, rejoice with me. The father says to the older son, come join the party. God does not simply seek and find us. He carries us. The shepherd picks up that sheep, throws it on his shoulders, and then cross the arms to hold the legs so that, that rascal, rascally little sheep doesn't run off again and carries it back. God does the same for us. Carries us on his shoulders, carries our sin, carries our shame, absorbs it all himself, takes it to the cross. He carries us back to himself. You know that that poem that everyone has hanging on their bathroom you know, with the the footprints in the sand, and that's the point where I carried you? Really, let's be honest, the whole story is God carrying us. There's no point where we're just kind of going along independently. He carries us the whole way home. So verse 7, there's joy that is in heaven. Hey, so for a, a Jewish person like Jesus and for others in his day, they took the sacred name of God very seriously. They wouldn't utter the name of God. And so they would often replace the the term heaven for God. It's kind of like when people will say, Today the White House made a statement. Well, they mean the president's spokesman said something. So to say that heaven rejoices is a way of saying God rejoices. The same in verse 10, to say that there's joy in the presence of the angels of God is to say that God himself rejoices over sinners that repent. Now, I don't know if you've got a category for that in your theology. Uh, There's people who hold to, well, divine impassibility that God doesn't have any emotions. Uh, This this sounds like God does. We're made in his image. We have emotions. They're a good thing. God is a God of joy. The portrait of this happy, beaming, dancing God perhaps contradicts our image of a Zeus-like deity sitting up on Mount Olympus, zapping people with lightning bolts. Now listen, he is a God of wrath. Precisely because he is a God of love, the same love that loves righteousness and loves repentant sinners must definitionally hate evil, right? A God who is good cannot tolerate evil. We get that. We know he's a God of justice. He would not be a good, loving God if he were not just. But let's not forget that this same God is a God of holy love. I don't mean wishy-washy, tolerates sin, and everything's good to go. This is not a love that sweeps sin under the rug, but this is a love that nails it to the cross. And he rejoices. Joy breaks out in heaven when the seeking Savior finds the wandering sinner and brings him home. Every sinner saved unleashes a worship service and a party in heaven. Now, I don't know how literally we should take that because God's not bound by time. But we do know that for all eternity in the presence of God, we will be singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive wisdom and glory and honor. That's what we'll be doing for all eternity is celebrating our salvation. So the, the, neighbors, uh, the woman's neighbors join the celebration. The servants start dancing. Did you notice that when the, the older son came, he could hear music and dancing? It's not just the father and everyone watching. Not everybody's having a good time. The Pharisees, like the older brother, they sulk outside the banquet hall. They can't bring themselves to rejoice. So will you celebrate with heaven when you see a sinner repenting? We're going to do a couple of baptisms today at the end of the service. I love baptisms because what a baptism is, is someone who has come to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've died to my old life. I'm alive in Christ, and I'm his, and I'm publicly declaring my faith. Now, baptism doesn't save, but it is this public celebration, this public announcement. It is entirely appropriate to be excited about that and to clap and to applaud. Like, totally fine, right? There's nowhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt not clap in church. Actually, if you find clapping mentioned in the Bible, it's commending it to us, clap your hands, all ye people. Like it's okay when we're singing to clap your hands, to raise a hand, to smile in church. I was lost, but I've now been found. This is joy unspeakable and full of glory that will echo through eternity. We ought to be happy about it. Nothing should thrill you more than hearing a testimony of seeing a conversion, of witnessing a baptism. And every gathering of Cloverleaf Baptist Church ought to be a celebration. Yes, we're celebrating not in the shallow "we won the football game" kind of way, but serious joy. You know, those serious it's joy. It's a serious joy that underneath the joy is something really substantial. It's not shallow. We're talking about joy that we would still have, even if we were having to meet out in a forest like Christians did in the early times. It's a joy we would have even when we're facing persecution. A joy that can leave the presence of the council rejoicing because it's counted worthy to suffer for His name. Serious joy. So God celebrates the found, he seeks the lost, he welcomes the, the wicked. But fourth, fourth truth we see, God restores the repentant. So this gets us now into the most famous parable that Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. We, we know this story, we have heard this story, we read it earlier and this fits into this larger trilogy of parables. So the point of this parable is the same as the point of the other two parables, okay? This is not now Jesus is going to do something totally different. No, he's making the same point. God rejoices when repentant sinners are found. God seeks the lost. He welcomes the wicked. Same points are woven throughout. And just as we had two parables put together earlier with the, the, the man with the seeking the sheep, the woman seeking the coin, here we almost have two parables put together, the younger son, And the older son, the story does not end in verse 24. It goes on in verse 25. Now the older son, verse 11 says a man had two sons. He's going to talk about both of them. The younger one who runs off and rebels horribly, lives this wicked, vile life, then comes home. And then the older son, who by all appearances was doing what his dad wanted him to do. He's working in the fields and he's living an upstanding moral life, but really doesn't have a relationship with the father. Jesus' point is both of them were lost. Both of them were lost, The younger one was lost to the far country. The older one was lost to the field. The younger one, was his lostness expressed itself in immoral living. The older brother's lostness expressed itself in self-righteousness and resentment. Both were lost. Both needed a savior. The father seeks both. This is a compelling story. But the central figure of the prodigal son parable is not actually the prodigal son. It is the father. Right? There is no character that you will find in any work of literature who is as compelling a figure as this father. We've never met anyone who's quite like this guy. We've never quite met someone who can just, when the son rejects him and rebels him, doesn't become resentful, doesn't become angry, doesn't become hurt. When the son comes home doesn't say, well, now let's just wait and see and do penitent who welcomes him, who throws a party, who then goes after the resentful son and pleads with him. We've never met anybody quite like that unless you've met Jesus unless you've met our heavenly father at the foot of the old rugged cross. So notice what we see about the father. We see his endurance. The younger son's totally out of line. Look, verse 12. Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance now. Normally, you don't get the inheritance till dad dies. This is the younger son saying, Dad, I don't care about you. Just give me the stuff. Uh, now, the, the Old Testament said, here's the law of the inheritance. The older son gets twice as much as the younger son. So dad divides up his, his, his land. It says in verse 12, he divided unto them, unto the both of them, his inheritance. So the older son, two thirds is earmarked for him. Now the father would still have continued use of the land, but the older son would have enjoyed the profits from it. And then when the dad dies, he gets the land. The younger son gets his one third. It says in verse thir- 13, after not many days, he gathered it all together. In other words, he took, say the, let's say the dad has 30 acres, he takes his 10 acres, he sells it at fire sale prices, he gets the cash, puts it in his pocket, and off he goes. Not a very wise investment strategy, by the way. That's, yeah, that money is going to depreciate, it's going to devalue, you're going to spend it and it's going to be gone. It's not going to continue making money for you. But here's the point. The father, notice his endurance. He endures the rejection. The younger son's just like, dad, I hate you, I, I just want your stuff. Straight-up blatant rejection takes the father's wealth, takes the father's living, and goes and wastes it. And he endures that rejection. He endures that rebellion. It says in verse 13, he went into a far country. In fact, he's feeding pigs. tells us he's in Gentile territory in the narrative structure here. He's far away from home. And it says he wasted his substance with riotous living. Really, his dad's money. He took his dad's hard-earned money, and he spent it quickly. He spent it on, say, fancy clothes, wild parties, and yes, prostitutes. He spends it on lavish luxuries, and pretty quickly, that money was gone. That word riotous is where we get the idea of the prodigal son. Prodigal does not mean rebellious. It means someone who spends prodigiously, someone who spends lavishly, someone who has an easy time spending lots of money and running up big credit card debt. That's the idea. He wastes it, and yet the father responds with patient endurance. One of the words that describes our God is long-suffering, long-suffering, enduring our rejection, our rebellion. You do realize that every sin we ever commit is committed with the resources of our Father. It's, created with, it's committed with the body that he created for his own glory, and we use it for sin. When you look at evil, you're using the eyes that he created to behold his glory, to behold that which is evil. When you sin with your hands, you're using the hands he created to serve and meet the needs of others, to serve yourself sinfully. When you use your talents, you know these people are incredibly talented with writing music and making movies, and they use them to, to blaspheme God, taking talents that God created for his own glory and using them for themselves, taking the life that God gave for, for him and using it for ourselves. So, Every sin is like this. Every sinner is like this younger son, and yet he endures. The Father God endures our pretense of owning what is really on loan from Him. What grace that He does not annihilate us immediately. What grace the ground does not swallow us whole. What grace that He does not take us out like He took Uzzah out. Or Ananias and Sapphira, the moment we told a lie, that's what our sin deserves, and he's patient. And we see the son going off in the far country. Now, I think this father is a wise man. He knows what's going to happen. He knows, man, my boy is going to go through some hard times. He's about to go to the school of hard knocks. I think he knows what's going on, that he's going to spend the money. He's not a wise son. He's going to get himself into a real pinch, and he knows that. I don't think there's anything as, as, as painful for a parent as watching their child suffer knowing that they're going through a hard time and it's through their own choices, and the father endures that rebellion. So we get a sense of how far the son goes. There's this famine that comes along. He begins to be in want, and he goes and he joins himself. He glues himself. He covenants together with a citizen of that country. So here's a Jewish boy working for a Gentile master. Here's a Jewish boy who's eaten kosher his whole life, feeding pigs. Like, that's the epitome of degradation. It's not just that, well, pigs are stinky and smelly. It said they were regarded as the most vile and unclean of all animals for any pious Jew. He can sink no further. And the Father endures. The Father is patient. If you can't see a portrait of God's grace here, pause, consider. This, what kind is patient grace of our Father in seeking sinners like you and me? We come along in verse 17. The Son comes to Himself, and He's got this incredible realization Man, all of the guys who work for dad, who just pick corn in the field, they're better off than I am, right? I'm, I'm hungry. I would like to eat the carob pods that the pigs are eating, and nobody's even giving those to me. This is, this is dumb. By the way, sin is always dumb. If you read the opening chapters of Jeremiah, one of Jeremiah's points is, guys, this is knuckleheaded stupidity. To sin and it's going to hurt you every time, and you're going to keep going back to it. What a description of addictions. You're like, I know this is dumb and I know this is hurting me. I know this is destroying my life and my body, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway because sin is not only a choice, it's also slavery. That's where the son finds himself. He comes to himself and he says in verse uh, verse 18, I will arise and go not just back to my dad's table, not just home, but to my father. He recognizes the fundamental issue here is not that he's made bad financial decisions. It's not that he has made bad real estate decisions and selling everything and going back, going to the far country. It's that he, the relationship is broken. I'll arise and I'll go and he'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, Okay, against God and before you. That, that warns us against, don't, don't allegorize it too much. Well, the Father represents God and so how can he be sinning against heaven? To say that confession of sin, genuine confession of sin, recognizes that all sin is ultimately against God you wrong wronged your spouse, yes, you've wronged your spouse, but you've also wronged the God who says, love your wife or be faithful to your spouse. You sin against your kids, yes, you've sinned against your kids, but you've also sinned against the God who says, I've entrusted you with these children. All sin is ultimately against God. So the son's repentance is genuine repentance. Some people are like, well, he's just saying this. No, this is real. What does real repentance looks like, look like? It's a recognition that the relationship is what is fundamentally at issue. The fundamental issue is not, will you go to heaven? Right? Everybody wants to go to heaven. They just don't really care about God. The fundamental question is, are you right with the God who rules heaven? Right? That's the question. When he confesses sin, it's not, well, I've made some mistakes, and if I've offended anyone, will they please? I I, I read a confession this week that somebody posted publicly on Facebook, and I'm like, sort of a pastor, and there was no mention of the word sin. There was no mention of God. There was no mention of, I. here's what I've actually done. It was this generic, vague, I've not lived my life with the integrity with which I should have. Genuine confession says, I've sinned against God. Thee, and the only Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. That's what makes sin so serious is sin is committed against God. So the son confesses his sin. He confesses, I've sinned against heaven, against you. And verse 19, I'm no more worthy to be thy son. Make me as one of your hired servants. A sense of, I've got nothing, Dad, and all I'm doing, I'm throwing myself completely on your mercy. Under the Mosaic law, the father could have had the son stoned for rebellion. He's like, I'm I'm not asking for anything. I'm not here to make any claims, to make any demands, or to negotiate. This is not a, God, if you get me out of this, I'll, I'll do this for you. No, just throw myself on your mercy. But notice the father's embrace. We're saying the focal point here is the dad. We see his endurance, but we see his embrace. Verse 20, he sees him a great way off. Same word, like I said, for the far country. He sees him coming out of the far country. Okay, he sees him, which means he's looking for him. And he runs to him, just totally disregarding what anybody thinks. And this picture, what a picture of restoration. He fell on his neck. That is to say he embraced him. And he kissed him the, the only other stories that are similar to this Jacob and Esau Jacob just real dirty player he cheats Esau out of his birthright out of his inheritance has to leave for a while and there's this amazing scene of this restoration that happens between Jacob and Esau where Jacob's thinking man Esau's going to kill me and they what they embrace and there's weeping or another example Joseph and his brothers in Egypt when there's finally that moment where Joseph's like Hey, it's me, guys, and I forgive you. There's weeping, and they fall on each other's neck, and they kiss, and they embrace, and they weep. Or David, when Absalom finally comes home, says David kissed him. It's a sign to say the relationship has been restored. What an embrace from the father. What a welcome from the father. He doesn't even let the son say, I'm not your son anymore. No, he he, he says in verse 20, he says, Bring forth the best robe and the ring and the shoes. We want to allegorize those. We're not going to say, well, the robe represents the righteousness of Jesus and the ring this. What these are are the symbols of sonship. Comes home in rags. He says, you're getting the robe of the firstborn son. Remember, Joseph had the robe of many pieces. You're getting this, this robe that you're going to wear. You're my son. The signet ring. The ability to sort of sign checks for dad. You're getting that back again. And shoes, you're coming home barefoot. Servants wear shoes. Sons do not. No boy of mine will go barefoot in this house sign of authority. What verse 21 is saying is complete and total restoration, not, well, probationary period. We'll give you six months to see how you do. Immediate and total restoration. What an embrace. What grace. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we come in repentance, God does not say, well, now you can sort of begin the long road to sort of earning back my good graces. No, immediate new life, immediate forgiveness, full and free What a statement of God's grace. There is no hesitation. He embraces. There is no hesitation. He welcomes us. There is no hesitation. He forgives us. You say, well, now, who's paying for all this? There's a lot of honor-shame culture. There's been a lot of shame and honor and all these things going on. Who's absorbing that? The Father. Who's absorbing the cost of the lost inheritance and the lost land? The Father. Who's absorbing all of the ugly looks from the townspeople? The Father. Who's paying for the feast? You guessed that the Father, who pays for our sin? God. Who pays the penalty for our wrongdoing? God on the cross, in Christ, bearing the penalty, his robes for mine. He takes the guilt. He takes the shame for us, and we stand forgiven at the cross. We now come to a final scene here and a final truth. We see in verses 25 to 32 that God entreats the resentful. So he welcomes the wicked, publican sinners. Come, listen. He seeks the lost like a shepherd, like that woman seeking the coin, like the father waiting for the son. He celebrates the found. He receives the repentant. And finally, he entreats the resentful. So we now get the older brother, verse 25, the second part of this parable. It doesn't end in verse 24. The older son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what this is all about. And he says, your son's come home, and there's a party going on. He's angry, verse 28, and he will not go in. He says, I'm not joining that party, not for me. I'm too holy. I'm too good to to be part of those shenanigans. This older son, by all appearances, if you looked at him, you say, he's a really good, good son. He's out in the field. He's working for his dad. It's kind of hard to bring out in English, but the sense of this is he is in field. He's constantly out there working. This is his identity. He sees himself simply as a laborer for his dad. Dad's his boss, not his friend. This older son is distant from the father, maybe not by miles, but by emotional distance. He doesn't have any affection for the father. He just works and works and works. So he's in the field, and he's also outside the banquet. Those are signals to us that, like the younger son was in the far country, the older son is separated from the Father as well. Now, if the younger son represents the notorious sinners who are flocking to hear Jesus, the older son represents the griping Pharisees who are getting upset that they're coming. They're supposed to see themselves be like, oh, this is us. We work hard for God. We keep all of the rules. We follow all of the, the Torah. We, we're all about doing things for God. It's all about duty and rule-keeping. And yet, distant from the Father, now here's what I think is interesting. I think we know Jesus well enough. We know the New Testament well enough to know what well, He seeks and saves: that which is lost to each with publicans and sinners. But man, those worthless Pharisees! What a bunch of scumbags! Like, there's one thing. If there's one thing we don't like, it's hypocrites and Pharisees. Jesus has no time for them. And yet we see the father doing what, going out to the older son and entreating them. The same Jesus who ate with publicans and sinners also sat down with Pharisees and won them to himself. I think sometimes the tables get turned in our modern day where in Jesus' day it was, well, the publicans and tax collectors, the drug dealers and the prostitutes and the immoral and the abortionists, they're the horrible ones that God can't save. I think we've come to a point now where we're like, okay, God's a God of grace. But those religious hypocrites, man, those spiritually abusive people, those are the ones where hell will burn hot. We can become a Pharisee towards those who are Pharisees, where we look and say, Those are people who God's grace cannot save. This parable would warn us against such an, such an attitude. He seeks and saved both kinds of lost people. The condition for being found is recognizing that you're lost, the condition for being received is repenting. Both need to repent. Now, do you hear the son's resentment? He was angry, verse 28. And would not go in. He said, I'm not joining that party. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. Wow. He seeks him. He entreats him. He comes out to him. Like the shepherd going into the wilderness for the lost sheep. Like the woman sweeping the floor for the lost coin. Like the father running to the son. He runs to the older son to entreat him. And he says to his father, these many years I have served you. Now the Greek word here is I have slaved away for you that not good enough for you, Dad, and you never gave me a party. You never let me have a good time with my friends. Do you hear the resentment, the seething resentment in his voice? I've never disobeyed. His self-righteousness is palpable. I've kept all the rules, and you've never repaid me. What if God's grace is not wages paid to a servant, but a gift given to the undeserving? What if well, that's exactly what grace is. It's a gift given to the undeserving, not wages paid to those who deserve it. This son of yours is the way this is worded. Um, verse 30, look at this. And as soon as this thy son. He's not even calling him his brother. As soon as my brother. He sort of disowned him. I don't want anything to do with him. He's not one of us. This thy son. You're, you can associate with him if you want, Dad. But I'm not. I am holier than the holy God is the mentality here. Careful careful sometimes we can try to be more holy than the holy god with erecting rules and boundaries that god never required that go against his love and his kindness and his grace you're just going to forgive him you're just going to embrace him reminds me of another story in the old testament david sins with Bathsheba, covers it up murders uriah deserves death a thousand times over for what he's done Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him. Thou art the man David confesses and repents. And then Nathan makes a staggering statement. Your sin is forgiven and you won't die. And you're thinking, how's that fair? The soul that sins, it shall die. And here's David getting off scot-free. Here's David not having to pay the penalty for his sin. Is David above the law? Is David getting a pass just because he's the king? And on one level we say, well, yeah, God's forgiving him. But on another level, the sin of David is passed on to the son of David. The guilt of David is put on Christ, and he bears the penalty. Any sin that God has ever forgiven in human history was forgiven on the basis of the cross. You've forgiven him. You're just going to welcome him. Yes, I am because I've paid the price, God says, the Father says. So now he says in verse 31... Now, the father's going to respond to this resentment, this self-righteousness, this self-pity that the older son is just seething with. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. He's insulted the dad being like, you've never been nice to me. He says, son, you've been with me all these years. You've had the same opportunity for a relationship. You've not taken it. And everything I have is yours. The younger son already got his inheritance. He blew it. He's done. The rest of the estate belongs to the older son. He's like, you've got, don't tell me that I've never given you anything. I would have happily thrown a party for you and your friends anytime. You just never asked. You never thought that I would be generous enough to do that. The son is blind. He's not only distant to the father's relationship. He is blind to the father's love. Here he calls him son. Child is the word here. My child. I look in your eyes and I see myself, I see this resemblance, such tenderness and love as he entreats this resentful son. The older son is blind to his father's love. He sees a taskmaster, a rulemaker, an unfair gift giver, not a loving father. He's unfeeling to the father's joy. Verse 32, it was meat. The idea is necessary. It was necessary for us to to feast because he was dead and he's alive and he was lost and he's found. He, He... He is so distant from the father, he has no idea what makes his father tick. Did you catch it? The servant earlier had a better idea of what the father's heart was than this older son. Servant knew, hey, yeah, the son came and he's, he's rejoicing. That's exactly what he would do. That's what we know of his character. The older son knows nothing of his joy, of his love. You see, God loves sinners. He loves sinners in the far country, and he loves the sinners who are slaving away in the field. He loves sinners who are going to hell from a bar. And he loves sinners who are going to hell from a church pew. He loves sinners who are self righteous. And he loves sinners who are self destructive. And Jesus came to seek both. To seek both. Now, you might be sitting here in a, in a church pew this morning. I want to ask you, which one of these are you? I think we often I try to identify with the younger, the younger brother. He comes home. Eh, that's me. But sometimes we're the older brother. When someone comes with a all the mess in their lives, like, well, well look, at, look at them. Now, kids, make sure you don't live like they do. and then, you know, Come with this judgmental attitude. We respond to sinners with hatred, with indifference, with fear, rather than with joy when they come to him. Now, the story, sort of, you're, you're sort of left being like, well, how does this end? Now, it's a, it's a fictional story that Jesus has made up, so there's not actually an older or younger brother. I think he leaves the story on this cliffhanger. Does the older brother come around and join the party? Does the, younger, is the, does the younger brother's repentance stick or is he back to his old ways? Like, we're, we're not told. And I think Jesus ends it on this cliffhanger and walks away, and everyone's like, So what happens? It's like the end of My Fair Lady, right? Where you just end, the, the story ends, and you don't know what happens to this relationship between the, the, the speech guy and the, the girl that he was helping earlier. How does, this, how does this end? And you're left to fill in the story. The end of the story is yours. The end of the story is you saying, Yeah, I'm the older brother, but I'm going into the feast. I'm the older brother, and I'm laying aside my self-righteousness, and I'm coming in repentance to the seeking Savior. That's how it ends. That's how it ends. It's all about God's amazing grace. How does God respond to sinners? Well, he welcomes the wicked, the repentant wicked. He seeks the lost. If you have been found, it's because he sought you. He celebrates the found. He receives the repentant. And he entreats even the resentful. I can't think of a better way to end this message today than that classic hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Now, the only people who can say that are the people who can start at verse, the the very first part of that. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch. If you think you're pretty good, that hymn's not true of you. If you think that you're righteous, that hymn's not about you. If you think that you don't have sin that needs to be forgiven, that hymn's not about you. It's only for those who see themselves as sinners who find grace at the foot of the cross. Father, we praise you for your amazing grace. Grace that seeks.